Thanks, guys. You can grab a seat. Appreciate it. It's good to be back with the Newcastle PM crew and a uh, few, few new faces who I haven't seen before. Uh, it's good to, good to be here with friends. And if you are new here, I'm Ben I'm from up uh, Foster Tun Curry Way. I get to live in paradise and uh, you get stuck with Jack O'Brien. So that's, um, I win. And uh, for those who don't know Jack, good. Um, so that was mean, wasn't it? That's not how you start, like, oh, Christians are heaps nice to one another. Um, that wasn't a good start. Uh, but um, it is good to be here tonight, and we're, we're going to have a bit of fun. I, I do just want to say a huge um, thanks for having me to the team here at Newcastle. You are um, blessed to have leaders, campus pastors like Pastor David Beck, and uh, brilliant, and uh, obviously the team who do such a great job from looking after people and uh, making sure you've got a great service to attend on Sunday to the Red Froggers out there doing a great job. <laughs> well, that was just you. Um, team shrunk, but, uh, but it's, so, it's, it's good to be here and uh, to, be a, to be a part of what's happening here. Um, I think God's doing some cool stuff at Newcastle. And, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of people who are going to have their lives changed because of, because of what's happening in here. So tonight I want to, uh, I want to share a message called um, Bad Theology Kills. Bad Theology Kills. And um, we all know that bad beliefs kill. Um, and, and to paint a picture, um, do, you, do you remember the, the lack of passion or just how much it was wrecked for you when you realized as a kid um, and the lack of passion for watermelon that you had when you realized as a kid, when you ate the seeds, uh, a plant was going to grow inside of you. And, and how many of you stopped eating watermelon for a period of time because you were like terrified of the possibility of a plant? Yeah, yeah, a few, few of you got there. Um, bad theology kills, bad beliefs kill. Bad beliefs kill like the belief that uh, if you swallow chewing gum, it's going to end up inside you for the next seven years. Um, that, that one's got a few because... And it can't work because we have a digestive system that pushes stuff out, right? I mean, a potato would stay in you for seven years if you didn't have a digestion system. Um, but purely because of that, it, it's like, what, 24 hours before that gum is out of you? But for me, I was terrified of swallowing gum. And so, you know, you're in that moment, you end up like sticking under a seat because you don't want to do the wrong thing or something like that. But what about, what about in, in your marriage for the, for the people in a, in a, in a relationship? Um, belief systems can kill the belief that you communicated something when you actually didn't. All the husbands are like, "Uh uh-huh. I told you, honey, that I had something on this morning. No, you didn't. Oh, I dreamt that I did, and so that was good enough. Or or when the wife goes, hey, look, um, we need milk tonight. Yeah, yeah, don't worry, I won't forget. And and, and they believe, I don't need to text them a reminder, but they should have. You should. Um, what about this one? When you believe that your spouse, a partner, or friend won't backstab you in a game of Settlers of Catan, or Monopoly, or Risk, friendships have been lost because we believe that someone was trustworthy, and then you realize that they're not. What about this one? Um, when you believe people on the roads, other drivers know what an indicator is. Uh, that belief can kill. And for those of you who don't know what an indicator is, it's a little thing that you know, your steering wheel is there. It's behind the steering wheel, and it helps other people know what you're about to do. And it uh, helps people know what you're thinking. Uh, and if you don't use it, here's, I'll give you a tip into what they're thinking. You're a moron. 
So, um, but have you ever had a bad belief about someone that ended up being wrong? I remember a few years ago, I was chatting to this girl, and she'd just broken up with this guy, and she was telling me about how horrible he is, because you're so kind to exes, we all are. And, um, and so she's going, he's a psycho, and he's obsessive, and he's really mean, and really cruel, and all these kinds of things. And, and then, um, by chance, I ended up at a party with this guy. And I'm just, I walk in, I'm like, that's the guy. Psycho, crazy. Oh, no. Everyone run and hide. It's the guy. And as we're chatting, I, I, this guy ends up in the conversation circle I'm in. I'm like, oh, this will be the real test. I'll find out for myself. By the end of it, it's just me and him chatting. Everyone's gone. We're now best friends. I realize now that what she said was completely wrong. She was a crazy one. <laughs> now we're best friends. Um, what about this one? Someone, people with bad theology who... Uh, who, who, who one day sat down and went, you know what, I know the per- I got told at church that I'm meant to write a list of my perfect partner. And so they got the list. You know how many 39-year-old single people they are holding on to the list? They had the person who got 72 out of 73 things on the list. But my gosh, they weren't more than two years older than them, you know? Like, or they were three mil too short. They, couldn't, they weren't quite six foot. I can't marry them. Do you know how many people have bought into that theology and now they're just lonely and old because they've got a bad belief system? What I realized is that, uh, because I remember hearing that and I was like, I should write a list. And then I realized no one's going to have fat, bald, bad humor on their list. (laughs) So I really shouldn't demand of others I'm not prepared to give. In the early church... um, and if you read kind of the, the second half of the Bible, the post-Jesus part of the Bible, you realize that most of the time what they were address, are trying to address is bad beliefs. There are a bunch of people, they're trying to figure this out. They're all like new to this Christian thing. And so they're like, you know, what do we believe? Like Jesus isn't here anymore to tell us what to do. And all we've got are these apostles. And like, how do we figure out what to do and what not to do? And so the apostles are like, well, we hung out with Jesus. So let us teach you like what this looks like and how we're meant to do this. And so if you read, you know, through Acts and through the Eons, which are all Corinthians and Ephesians and all, I call them Eons, it's easy. And then Hebrews and Timothy and all those kinds, you'll realize that most of the time they're addressing Addressing their beliefs, their theology, the stuff that they believe. Um, and, and so you realize that they're, that they're having a lot of issues with it. Paul, um, who's one of the early church leaders, um, wrote to a young church leader in, in a letter called Timothy, Timothy 1, Timothy 2. And Timothy 2, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he says this, and if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can grab them out now. If not, it's going to be on the screen. But it says this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them great numbers of teachers to say what their itching is want to hear. These days, it's not necessarily teachers, it's like news outlets on Facebook. That you're like following the Batuta Advocate, and that's like your news source now. But then you've got the Sky News junkies, the Guardian, Sydney Morning Herald. I don't know what yours is, but, but we end up blocking out anything that we don't like. You know, we, we unfriend that friend who has a view that opposes ours, and we just surround ourselves with what they call an echo chamber. They surround themselves with a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn uh, their ears away from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Luke 
who was an early uh, a guy who wrote a lot of the history of the early church, recorded a letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of churches in Acts 20, verse 27. He goes, Paul says, For I am not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come amongst you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with uh, day and night with tears. He's saying, watch over not only yourselves, but the people around you. Because there's people who are going to make stuff up and they're going to distort stuff because they, they want to draw people away to follow them. They, they, they want to make, make their fan follow. They want to have their own kind of religion out on the side. So what does he then say to them? Verse 32. Now commit you to God and to the word of his grace. If you look at the original word that he used because he didn't write in English... He, he literally wrote the word logos, which means the word of God, which means a scripture, which means a truth, which means what Jesus said, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. See, every answer to, every answer to deception is always truth. You, you want to fix a lie? Then you need truth. And so in the early church, they, they often would find that these guys would come up with these strange things. And put these strange beliefs out there. And what they would have to do is draw people back. Come on, let's have a look at truth. One example of this, you can see it in Galatians 5. And it's one of the, book, one of the Ian books. And, 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 and you can look, like Galatians is very much Paul just writing to the church of Galatia. Going, hey guys, there's a few things you got a bit wrong here. Let me just, let me get this back in. He, he says stuff through it like, who's bewitched you? Who's tricked you into believing all these strange things? But we get to chapter 5 and verse 1, and he writes this. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. The whole point of this Christian thing is freedom. Why do you find yourself then caged with all these weird doctrines? He goes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by this yoke of slavery. Verse 2, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, what? If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Basically, back then, um, to be a Jew, they believed that the sign of you being a Jew is that you were circumcised. That to show that you're a follower of God, that you had to be circumcised. Um, I once heard a story about three pastors who were trying to decide whose expression of faith was the right one. And so there was a Catholic priest, an INC pastor, and, and a Jewish rabbi. And they were trying to argue, you know, our expression's better than yours, ours, and so on and so forth. And they said, right, we have to figure out a way to see whose, whose way of doing church, the way of doing faith is right. And so they come with this idea that whoever could convert a bear to their, their way of doing faith would... would, would you know, obviously be the right one because, you know, God is God over uh, of nature. And so, you know, if you can convert nature and, and nature follows you, then you're the right one. And so Catholic guy goes, well, I'll go first. And so he goes out into the forest. He comes back and he's got slashes across his arms and legs. And I'm like, what happened to you? He goes, well, I found this bear and to be Catholic, you just sprinkle water over it. And so I went up to this bear and started throwing water in its face and just attacked me. And so I ran for my life and I just got back and 
I guess it didn't work. They're like, yeah, it didn't work. That's not, it can't be Catholicism. That's, that's not right. And so the INC church pastor out there, one of our guys, goes, well, my turn then. So he runs out. And when he comes back, he's like really cut up. Like the bears really like smashed him. And, and they're like, what happened to you? Go, well, you know, we pray for people and like they fall over and all those kinds of things. And, you know, so I walked up to this bear and I'm like, oh, in the name of Jesus. And, and this bear just turned around and just, you know, start again. He's like, so I guess it's not me. Anyway, the Jewish guy goes out, and, and uh, he comes back. He's barely alive. Her legs are hanging off. And they're like, what happened to you guys? Well, to be Jewish, you've got to be circumcised. <laughs> so these guys are basically saying, hey, look, they're rocking up to church. It's like the hello card time. Hey, look, we'd love to, great to have you here at Good Life Church. Love for you to be part of the family. If you fill out one of these cards here, we'll have your details about, let you know about what's happening on there. We'll also give you a free coffee. Also, if you put your address on there, we'll help us find you and we need to circumcise you. <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> it's an awkward chat with a new person. To be like, oh, so you want to be a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I love this religion. Oh, yeah, you circumcised? I'm not trying to be crude here. This is actually what they believed. And this is what they were actually doing to people. Oh, yeah, you, you want to follow Jesus? Great. <laughs> well, you need to be a pastor these days, a steady hand, you know, like... So that's what was going on. And so Paul's going, this is craziness. Because if you actually look at it, being a Christian wasn't about this circumcision, wasn't about this fleshly thing. They, they actually said it had nothing to do with a physical expression. In fact, the Bible actually goes and it goes, we're not interested in a circumcision of the flesh. We're interested in a circumcision of the heart. That not your outward appearance has changed, but actually that your heart is changed. That there's things in your life that have been holding you back, that that gets cut off. And so he writes further into verse 7. He goes, you're running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He goes, who gave you this crazy belief system? Who gave you this theology? You were doing so well, but someone distracted you from who you're meant to be. And someone distracted you from what Christianity is all about. And they made it about this abstract concept that doesn't apply anymore. And he goes, when you have these little belief systems, they start to wreck the whole batch of dough. And you've got to be aware of even these little belief systems. He goes further. and He's got some choice words for the people who, who came up with this. In verse 12, he goes, as for those agitators... I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's basically saying, don't, don't just stop with the foreskin. Cut it all off. It's the first time in history you hear someone say, I hope they don't breed. It's a heavy call. But Paul is getting a bit angst. He's like, why are we, why are we doing this? Why, why, are we, why are we caught in all these strange things that don't even, aren't even relevant to faith anymore? And the reality is that there's a fight for your belief. There's a fight for your theology. There's a fight for the things you count as true. Maccas, they want you to believe that they have a healthy range. Why? Because they want to make money off you. Politicians want you to believe that they're impartial, benevolent beacons of hope in society. Why? Because they want you to vote for them. 
there's a fight for what you believe. There's a fight for your theology. When it comes to our faith, the enemy knows that bad theology can distract you from the real core of who Jesus is. But not only that, it can now separate you from Jesus. Bad theology kills. C.S. Lewis says this. He's a famous kind of um, apologist in in the faith. But he has this quote that I read preparing. C.S. Lewis wrote, We come to Scripture not to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. We come to this faith not to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. Paul wrote to the Galatians, you've been caught up in religion of the Scripture, but not the person of the Scripture. Bad theology kills, not because it kills your faith, but it, it kills your ability to see clearly who you're meant to have faith in. See, what I've noticed in all my years of going to church and following Christ is that there's a lot of people who know about the God of the Bible, but they don't know who the God of the Bible is. And they don't know him for himself, and because of that, they haven't been transformed by the God of the Bible. So what does Paul do? In all these scriptures, and all these examples, that he finishes by bringing people back to the simplicity of the gospel. He brings people back to the core of it. He cuts away all the religious jargon, and he goes, this is Jesus, you need to know him. And at this point, you can go, whoa, that's great, fantastic. I, you know, I could take that away. You know, for me, I just need to make sure that I'm focusing on Jesus. But what I've realized is that most people who've got bad theology or they've got bad belief systems in them, they're, they're normally not aware of it. And, and what it takes is a little bit of self-reflection to realize that you're a little bit off in what you believe from the Word of God or, or about God. And so for me, I know that growing up in church, there were plenty of things I believed. And then I realized, hang on, that's, that's not like, that's not a belief system. That's not a scriptural belief system. That's something I made up or someone preached from a pulpit somewhere. And, 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 and so I got to the point that I was like, hang on a second. Some of the stuff I believe is wrong. Some of the stuff that, that, that I, I think is wrong. But then I also realized that it's one thing to try and find the things in your life that are, that, that are a little bit on faulty ground. It's another thing to realize the bits that you haven't even thought of or even conceived before. I remember 20 years old, I walked into my first university lecture. Sunshine Coast University, their greatest claim to fame is that there's a herd of um, uh, kangaroos that live on site. You know, that's like a herd, flock, bunch. And, and, you, and you'd like walk out of class and act, you'd have to step across a kangaroo. There was actually a class where you had to be like, what are you doing, mate? Like, and they were so tame and so used to people. They'd just lie on the footpath and everyone was like, what, what is this? And so that's Sunny Coast University. And, um, and so I went there. I remember my first three lectures on my first day of university, 20-year-old Ben. And I walked into my first one, my second one, my third one. They all had the same theme about the non-existence of God and the stupidity of people who believe in Him. Wow. And I went into one class and, and they said, by the way, if you write an essay and you include Scripture in it, I'm thrown out the window. If you're in my class and you bring up Scripture, I'm not listening to you. 
Because the Bible is not a literary subject, it's made up, it's caused all these issues. And for the next three months, they actually went through all the issues that churches and beliefs and, and, and Christianity caused in society. And basically said, if you're a Christian, we, we're not interested. I'm not here to teach you about it, and I'm not here to listen about it. I remember walking in my first day of university, let alone the first term of, some, of university, thinking, oh man... I don't know what I believe. I've never heard this before. I grew up in church and they just like God's real and that's like a given thing. But these guys have like legit logical, you know, arguments against my faith and I have no, I have no answer. I have no answer. And so for the next, that was, um, you know, 13 years ago, I've been on a journey of actually going, well, what, what answer do I have for that? What answer does the Bible have for that? How does it even answer that kind of claim? What does it, what does it say to the Crusades? What, it, what does it say to these things of history that the church got wrong? And so for me, I realize that prevention is far better than a cure. That now I actually actively try and find out what do I believe? What do I believe about this topic? What does God say about this topic? Who cares what I think? What does the scripture say? Because I've been wrong plenty of times. What does the Bible say about it? And, 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 and does it make sense? And doesn't actually lead to life. Because in life, the heresy these days isn't so much this active, out-and-out preaching thing. I mean, if you want to find someone who preaches heresy, they're out there. You'll be able to find them. They're, they're, they exist. But most of the heresy, most of the stuff, I mean, you're not going to most churches these days and they're trying to get you circumcised. It's not like really happening these days. Like, it's not a thing. And if it did today, tonight, would be all over that. But what I found is the, 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 the bad theology is normally stuff that we can't tell. It's, it, it's, it's, it's some stuff that's pretty convincing that we're like, oh, okay, I never thought of it like that before. And that's why I'd say to you is, is even you listen to me. Our job is not just to swallow everything that people say. You're like, what? You shouldn't listen to the preacher. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... Listen to what we've got to say, but don't just accept it as gospel truth. Because here's a little inside secret. This might shock a few of you. I'm human and I'm not perfect. I know. Who knew, right? So there's a chance that I'm going to get this wrong. There's a chance that I'm going to have a bad day. There's a chance that I'm going to missay something or you're going to mishear something that I say. And so your job is not just to sit there and come to church every week and go, good message. Or, oh. your job is actually to come in here. And that's why I think it's great people take notes because they write down things and go, oh, I'm going to look at that later. I had someone already today that I was talking to and I preached this morning in Toronto and they're going, there's something you said that I actually want to go and check. I'm like, good. Let me know if I'm wrong. I've got to preach this message again. I'd hate to keep preaching garbage. I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one, actually. I think they're right. They're wrong, but I didn't want to tell them. <laughs> but your job is not just to swallow something that comes from the, from the platform every week, that you should, you should actually find out your own faith and what you believe and actually go to the Scriptures and go, what does it say and what does it mean? And so we need to learn how to understand Scripture properly for ourselves so that we know when someone's leading us astray. Why? Because it's important to know how we respond to Scripture because how we respond to Scripture shapes how we respond to Jesus. 
It shapes how we understand God. Let me grab one example. Um, uh, and this is one that I commonly kind of heard through university. As a 20 to 25-year-old, I reckon I heard this probably a couple of times a year from someone at some point, if not a lecturer. And so what people would do is they'll go into the Old Testament, they'll get some abstract verse that you just don't preach about very often. Because the Old Testament, there's, got, there's, there's some like big themes in the Old Testament. I grew up as a youth pastor where you kind of focus on the happy themes of the Bible. It's like Old Testament, you're like David and Goliath, like David, little guy, slingshot, kills a guy, woo, how good's God? Um, Daniel and the lion's den, maybe Shadrach and Meshach and his mates in the fire, and then Jeremiah 29, 11, and then let's go New Testament and preach on Jesus' happy times. Like, you know, like he's a really good guy, he loves you, he wants the best for you, how good? And that's pretty much youth pastor preaching. Because uh, these deep topics, like you're definitely not picking Deuteronomy 7, which says this. When the Lord God, well, sorry, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Shevisites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, verse 2, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. God is love. Um, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. God is so loving. Show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. But she's, she's hot. No, no. Do not give your daughters to them or their sons or, or take their daughters for your sons. Verse 4. For they will turn your children away from following me and serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. Just... <laughs> have you ever been read this by someone at university? I know I have. Verse 5. This is what you're to do with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people and his treasured possession. At the end of that, they say, do you really want to believe in that religion and in that God? Do you really, do you really think he's a God of love? Read that. Come on, t- look me in the eye and tell me that that's a God of love. That's your Bible. That's your God. What, do you have like a split personality in like Old Testament and he just, you know, he, he took his meds around, you know, somewhere about, you know, 200 BC and then went, oh, I should really send Jesus and, and from then on he's like, new happy Jesus, like, <laughs> how does this work? And the first time I read that and the first time I heard that, I was pretty challenged. They said stuff like, do you really want to believe in the God who says stuff like, kill people for simply living in the wrong land? unprovoked, destroy them all, show them no mercy. An entire group of people, wipe them off the face of the planet because they're at the wrong place at the wrong time. And they say things like, I pity the people who follow that God. But this is how bad theology kills. Because it puts you in the place where you have to answer for something the Bible never says. It, It says that you have to buy into and believe a picture that isn't actually real. See, there's two words that actually protect us from taking things out of context. Um, and I'm going to breeze over these. These are Bible college words. And um, 
If you want to know more, go to Bible college. And I don't have two semesters to explain this to you. Um, but the first word is a word called exe- exegesis. Or, if you want to annoy Pastor Beck in Bible college, called exegesis. <laughs> but exegesis is an effort to reach back into history to the original author and audience. Because if you were to look at the kind of Christianity that I pitch to a five-year-old kid compared to the kind of, if I wrote a letter to a five-year-old kid and if I wrote a letter to, say, Cal Gibbs, our young adults and, and young people's pastor, they'd be very different. But if all you had was what I wrote to a year five kid, you'd think, this guy doesn't know much about faith. You'd read it not knowing who wrote it or who it to, and they went, oh, this person has a very basic understanding of faith. Who wrote it and who they wrote it to gives a huge amount of context to what we believe. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13. If you have, don't know what that is, go to the next Christian wedding. And you'll know what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It goes on. Context, it wasn't written for you to read at your wedding. It was actually written to a church that was torn apart with conflict and hatred for one another. And Paul was writing to them going, you guys need to learn how to love one another. Because you're bickering and you're angry at one another. And it has more to do with spiritual gifts than it does marriage. Context of who wrote it and who they wrote it to. The second word that we need to learn is a word called hermeneutics. Which is the study of the original intent of the biblical text. Which talks about context, which talks about what was happening at the time when it was written. Like if you were to just pull out of random society a newspaper article that has no date on it, but was written about, you know, say September 12, 2001, 9-11, but the day after, for those who didn't pick that up. <laughs> Some people are like, what happened that day? What was I? I was in like year three and... Uh, And if you got it out of context and you read a whole thing about who knows what was written at the time, if you didn't understand that someone just flew a plane into a building, it would seem like quite an odd thing to be getting said. Understanding what's happening at the time, the history, the context, what happened in the verse prior, what was happening in the book uh, after, what was getting said at the time, what was happening in Israel, what was happening here, that actually adds a huge amount of context to the Word of God. And so exegesis and hermeneutics are big Bible college words. And if you want to know more, like I said, go to Bible college. But if you actually do this to this verse back in Deuteronomy, you'll realize a few things about the people who live in the land. Let's take, for instance, the Canaanites, who God's asking to be shown no mercy and be destroyed completely. The Canaanites worshipped a God named Molech. Molech was uh, Moloch worship was, was a couple of standout features of it, I guess, was child sacrifice. And secondly, they believe it's strongly linked with child prostitution. You read in Leviticus 20 when they talk about Molech. Verse 2 and 3 of Leviticus 20. Tell the Israelites, anyone, whether an Israelite or an alien residing in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall be put to death. You go, well, that's a bit harsh, but it's people who are sacrificing their children, put them to death. 
let his fellow citizens stone him. Now, back in the day, it meant something different today, but it meant kill him. I, God, myself will turn against such a man and cut him off from the body of his people. For in giving his offspring to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. What, it, what basically was happening is people were getting pregnant. You like log on to Facebook and, you know, about 2000 BC, 3000 BC. And there's a little picture. We're pregnant, a little sonogram, a little black and white image. I still don't know what I'm looking at, but I still hit like. I just know, like, if I see that, hit like. Right? I got this. And, and, then, and then you end up getting invited to the party back then, and you, you, know, you smack, a, smack a rock, and it cracks open, and there's, like, blue or pink in it. And you're like, oh, it's a boy. Yay. And then they start putting up the photos of them, like, oh, it's getting close now. Not long now. Then they have their first child. And to worship Moloch, you'd get your first child, you'd take it down the local temple and you'd give it to the person there and they would put it in a fire. And you would burn your first child as worship. It's been said and that the, that the, that the people who worked in the temple were often the girls of the tribe who at their 13th birthday would then go and work for one year at the temple. Their jobs, to burn babies in worship to God, but also to be a prostitute for the local men. So by the time you turned 14 as a girl in Canaan, you had gone through 12 months being treated like a piece of meat and burning babies. A little bit of hermeneutics changes what that Deuteronomy is talking about. Because if you heard that there was a nation or a tribe or a community on earth doing this, what would you want God to do about it? And what would you do about it? Man, I saw Coney 2012. I saw how angry you got and it was a prank. If this happened, man, forget all your hatred for Donald Trump. You'd be petitioning him to do something about it. Get your biggest bomb, drop it on that tribe now. You'd be writing letters to the UN Human Rights Council going, we've got to do something about it. And if they don't do anything, heck, you're picking up a gun. First flight to that tribe, you're going to teach them a lesson because inside you is a deep sense of justice that you go, that's not right. A little bit of hermeneutics adds a little bit of context to this. So when God said, I want these people destroyed, it wasn't because he was just, they were living in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hey, you're, you're sorry you're in the postcode that my chosen children are coming to. No, no, no. His heart was breaking for children who were victims and being used. If you look more, actually, there's a point where Israel starts to worship Molech. And God destroyed them too. Got a little city named Babylon to march across there and wipe them out pretty much off the face of the planet for the next couple of thousand years. God hates when children, God hates when people are hurt. And there's a righteous judge, judgment. And back then he didn't have the UN. He didn't have the allies of the Second World War to stand up against evil. He had Israel. So he did something about it. And yet when we read him doing something about it, we're like, oh God, that's not right. Poor people that was living in Canaan. How dare you just wipe them off as a place of planet? Well, you would too. 
God hates the things that kill us. God hates the thing that hurts us. Why? Because He cares for us. And when we properly read the Bible, we properly understand God. My goal today is not to teach you hermeneutics and exegesis. Although, you know what? To actually get all this, it took me about 15 minutes in a thing called Google. So you can do this for yourself. If you don't understand a scripture or understand what people are saying, just search it. Go and find... There's, there's so many people writing blogs about these things these days. And you can actually go through them and go, hey, that actually looks really good. That makes sense to me. But my goal isn't to teach you exegesis and hermeneutics. It's to show you that when you read the Bible properly, you actually find the wonder of God and the goodness of God and the character of God. You realize what he thinks about you and what he wants for you. See, so many people read the Bible and the Bible, you know, Jesus talks about like, the, you know, don't, don't sin and don't do the wrong thing. Don't hurt people. And, and we kind of read the kind of moral guidelines of the Bible and we go, oh, I've done that. Oh, God must hate me. Because if we went online and read the government's like, do not speed and we realize we speed that day, we feel like the government hates us. But we do that with God. We read, oh, you know, don't do this. And we're, oh, I did that. God must hate me. But God hated you. Why did he send his son to die on a cross for you? Because if you scratch a little bit deeper when you read the Bible, you actually see the character of God shining through in every point. So many people are afraid of this judgmental God. But he sent his son to deal with the stuff that you need to be judged for. Yeah, he doesn't like it when you hurt people. Is there a problem with that? But here's a brilliant thing. Even though you did it, he didn't. You deserve consequences. He sent his son to take those consequences for you. This is the beauty of the word of God. It shows you the goodness and the amazing character of the God who created you and saved you. Bad theology kills. But when you get it right, it brings life because you realize how good he is.